Money FM 89.3. Best of breakfast. Morning shot. Good morning, Lindy Fu with you on today's Morning Shot. If you regularly shop for groceries, you would have experienced the volatility of food prices. Climate and weather changes or even geopolitical events can send fluctuations trickling through the entire food chain. And just recently, floods in Johor pushed up the prices of Malaysia's vegetables. One wholesaler we spoke to actually cited tomatoes as an example, which saw its supply drop by nearly half as a result. And correspondingly, its price went up from $1.80 per kilo to $2.80. Meanwhile, the World Bank says historically high commodity prices, the Ukraine war, volatile fertilizer markets, have left many countries facing a cost-of-living crisis with double and even triple-digit food price inflation. So what adjustments can be made to help our food systems weather this perfect storm? For more insights, we're joined by food security expert Professor Paul Ting from the S. Rajaratnam School of International Studies. Good morning to you, Professor. Good morning, Lily. Okay, let's start off with food cost in Singapore, which is still up by over 10% compared to a year ago. What would you say are the key drivers of this? There's not a single driver in me. You know, in fact, uh, I, I think we're seeing the lingering effects of uh, what we commonly call the three Cs, climate change, COVID and crisis. And there's also new emergence that are just starting to take effect like even flu and African foreign fever. Huh? Mm-hmm. But on a more macro level, I think you've already hinted at some of those drivers, extreme weather events, floods, droughts, mm-hmm. that affect agricultural production in the countries that we source food from. Because don't forget, Singapore imports over 90% of its food, mm. right? The second, of course, are supply chain delays and disruptions that are causing short-term pain, you know, with consequential price hikes. That might not last a long time, but we mm. do see those hikes. And of course, the third, which is a continuing issue going into the rest of the year, is the cost of producing or growing food. Mm. That's really increased fertilizer, energy, other chemicals, and so on. You know, and despite some, uh, you know, kind of moderation, I mean, energy prices still remain very high. Mm-hmm. And this definitely affects the cost of handling food, distribution, processing. Of course, even of uh, cooking food at <laughs> hawker stalls and so on. Mm. Then fertilizer prices, I mean, you know, farmers have struggled to cope with rising fertilizer prices. And what has happened is that mm-hmm. this has affected the area planted, but also the actual yield itself, how much is produced. So eventually all this gets passed on to the consumer. Mm-hmm. And Singapore, you know, we're basically a price taker, really, because, you know, we're such mm-hmm. a small country. Mm-hmm. So we don't really have that much influence on, on how much the farm gate prices are. Talking about crop yield, mm. it seems like a variety of key crop production and its prices are extremely volatile. You know, we're, we're talking about vegetables affected by the floods in Malaysia and soy prices skyrocketing to a record levels in the last half of last year as mm. a result of droughts in South America, supply chain issues. So are there perhaps crops that are more resilient to weather conditions and geopolitical issues? They are, but unfortunately some of these crops are not those that are preferred by most consumers. So I look at it this way. There are crops that are more tolerant, definitely, mm-hmm. to volatile, you know, weather and so on. For example, sorghum, millet. Mm. But these are not the ones that we prefer to eat. But on, on the positive side, there are also new varieties of the same crop that are more tolerant to weather stress. For example, rice. Mm-hmm. You know, there's now rice that can withstand flash floods mm-hmm. or maize that can withstand drought. These are the kind of promising, you know, technologies or new developments you know, that can help us tide over extreme weather. 
But overall, we do know that you know that some crops use a lot more water than other crops. Rice, for example, mm-hmm. right? rice versus potato versus cassava in, in that order. Right, rice mm-hmm. needs at least three thousand liters of water to produce one kilo of rice. Mm-hmm. Whereas potato cassava needs a lot less. So, but the problem is that, you know, I mean, we don't have a, a culture of eating potatoes here in Asia mm-hmm. or cassava for that matter, except during the, the, the Second World War, we, we mm-hmm. had no choice but eat cassava. Mm-hmm. Now, the geopolitics question is a bit more difficult to, to actually address. Resilience to geopolitics really suggests that we need to fully diversify our mm-hmm. import sources, mm-hmm. yeah, so that you know. The same crop can be grown in different geographies, in different political systems. Mm-hmm. So that at any point in time, we have a supply chain to one of those sources. And this really is the strategy that Singapore has adopted so well in the past. Mm-hmm. You know, over 170 countries, you know, that, that we import food from. And that number keeps increasing anyway. So, yeah. But is it practical to rely on diversified sources? I think it's not really practical. I think it is a must. Mm, mm. Now, of course, you know, you can, one can argue, why, why can't Singapore produce more mm-hmm. to control resilience? And the answer is, yes, we can, but to what extent and at what cost? Mm. I, I think you probably heard about the 30 by 30 in Singapore, mm-hmm. you know, the goal to produce 30% of our nutrition That's is right, by 2030 yeah. mm-hmm. and so on. Huh? Now, we're now focusing a lot on urban farming mm. and mainly under controlled environment conditions. The whole area called controlled environment agriculture basically like indoor farms, you know, with vegetables, you know, fish and so on. And these, to some extent, do buffer us against weather and also geopolitics. But there's only a certain limit to which, you know, the economy of scale don't apply anymore because we're such a small country, Mm -hmm. right? And and, and cost of labor is high, cost of energy is high. The the capex to build all these indoor farms is also very high. And Singapore consumers are still very discriminating Mm -hmm. as far as price is concerned. Mm-hmm. Right, so, so until such time where we can produce at scale, mm-hmm. at the same price as vegetables coming from Cameron Highlands or Johor, mm-hmm. Singapore consumers are still going to prefer those cheaper vegetables. Unfortunately, yeah. So, is there a particular part of food systems that can be targeted to push down food prices? Well, I think that there are two main parts. First, obviously, is the production part because that's where a lot of the costs are, are incurred, and that's also where the most risks are the production part, or what we call the grow-out part. And that's where keeping fertilizer prices affordable, having enough water, proper technologies will really help. You know, during the Ukraine crisis, I think we all know the facts. Now. I mean, Russia, Russia supplies about 16% of the world's fertilizers. Mm-hmm. So when there's a shortage of fertilizers, you know, the, the knockdown effects are actually quite bad, you know, across all sub- parts of the supply chain, all right? Mm-hmm. So production is one part of the food system. But the other is the distribution part, the transport part. Mm-hmm. And this is where energy costs have a big impact, number one. And second, the availability of, of ships to ship food around, you know, and to ensure that supply chains are not interrupted. Now, we saw, for example, during the early days of the, uh, the Russian-Ukraine crisis, you know, mm-hmm. food through the Black Sea was fully interrupted. Mm-hmm. But that result was that like, wheat prices just shot to the roof. Mm. You know, because some countries are dependent almost 100% on wheat, you know, from the Ukraine-Russian area. So, so having supply chains assured is very key. Now, of course, the third part of the, the kind of food system is the, uh, the consumer part, the, the food affordability part. Mm. You know, this is a, a very interesting, in fact. Here's where government policy comes in and government action comes in. In many countries, they saw big spikes in food prices. Governments came in to provide safety nets. But what, what really surfaced to me, which we are most encouraging, is that we saw social cohesion also increase 
during the crisis, volunteer mm. groups coming up to provide food for the disadvantaged. That was an amazing development, I think, during the crisis. So, in terms of protecting food resilience as a whole, mm. um, technology has been touted to be, you know, maybe a solution. We've, of course, seen some farmers adopt advanced tech to help with crop yield and resilience. But how does this all work and how can the corresponding expensive prices be balanced out? It's going to be, again, you know, obviously, there's no single kind of silver bullet approach. Mm-hmm. It's going to be a combination of factors affecting both production, affecting distribution, affecting the price of inputs, which inputs are a key driver in the end for farmers to produce mm-hmm. food. Yeah, mm-hmm. And of course, the proper use of technology, because even right now, we know that many crops that we depend on are not achieving their maximum yields. Mm. Rice, for example, you know, in fact, there's a, a lot of... Uh, People are very worried right now, and I wrote about this, that you know, most countries here, we only get half the yields from the seeds that we plant on mm-hmm. rice. And this is because of you know, improper use of inputs, lack of water, improper use of water, you know, mm-hmm. and so on, many practices. So we need to balance both your policy, technology. Yeah, and then in between, of course, the trade issue, you know, getting food from the source to the consumer. We also want to talk about climate change impacting food production, right? We know that food production in itself also contributes to carbon emissions. So are we doing enough to reduce greenhouse gas production from food systems themselves? Or do we have the necessary technology needed to do so? (laughs) That's a a leading question. I don't think we're doing more than enough or more than enough. But there are a lot of efforts around the world to now address this issue mm-hmm. of uh, basically greenhouse gas emissions from agriculture. Uh, but, but, you know, again, there, there are trade-off issues here. For example, rice, right? We all depend on rice. Rice yields depend on a lot of fertilizer. Now, rice in Southeast Asia is also the biggest emitter of greenhouse gases, especially mm-hmm. methane, mm-hmm. right? And there, there are technologies available uh, to, to reduce greenhouse gases in rice, but farmers don't have incentive at the individual level, reduce methane. And, and this is the classical issue of, you know, individual good versus societal good. Right? Society wants, you know, greenhouse mm-hmm. gases to go down, global warming. The farmer wants his yield to go up. Mm-hmm. Like more money, you know, for his livelihood. But, but as the yields go up, you actually emit more methane. And also nitrous oxide and other polluting gases. Huh? Mm-hmm. So, so somehow, I think government has to set in, uh, step in. But so does the private sector. I think uh, you probably were aware recently that the Marseille and a few other groups you know, invested in, in, a, in a new company mm-hmm. to try and reduce methane yes. emissions from rice mm-hmm. by getting farmers to adopt certain practices. Mm-hmm. Okay? And it, it's a big, what we call, extension effort uh, that involves public and private sectors. But certainly in Southeast Asia, we're not going to see any, any reduction in methane unless we address the rice issue. Now, of course, in the other parts of the world, you know, the, the deforestation issues, you know, cattle grazing, and then, uh, you know, uh, meeting emissions from, from mm. uh, cattle and so on, you know, yeah, those are all interrelated issues. Which really, you know, you can't, you can't just, like I say, no silver bullet. Yeah? You could have multiple avenues to address the same issues, basically policy, technology, just two of them. And the third, which is very important, in fact, is consumers. Mm. In this modern world, consumer preference can drive how farmers farm how food systems deliver food. So I think consumer awareness, you know, which folks like yourself can, can help to bring about that. Huh? You know, the fact that, you know, let's say this whole thing about eating less red meat, consuming less beef and being more vegetarian, 
you know, which has been proven by scientists that, you know, a, a more vegetarian diet worldwide is going to really help us address, you know, the, the climate change issues. All right. Very, very interesting insights there, Professor. Thank you so much for your time this morning. We've been speaking with food security expert Professor Paul Ting from the S. Rajaratnam School of International Studies at NTU. Thank you. Most welcome. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download the SBH Radio app available on Google Play or the App Store.